You're listening to the CIPD podcast series. Hello and welcome to the ninth CIPD podcast. I'm Philippa Lamb. In this podcast, we have an exclusive interview with Greg Dyke. His career has seen him take on leadership roles at organisations including LWT and the BBC, roles that have rarely left him far from the headlines. When circumstances forced him to resign as Director General of the BBC, employees took to the streets in protest. In this podcast, we ask Greg about the leadership style that inspired this loyalty and about his strong views on how to manage people well. Greg was one of the masterclass speakers at HRD, the CIPD's annual learning and development conference, and we sent our reporter, Adam Kirtley, to catch up with him there. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Greg Dunn. Greg Dyke, thanks so much for, for coming to talk to us. I just want to start off with a very general question for you, really. How important is the way people are managed, do you believe, to the success of a business? I think in most businesses, absolutely crucial. I think uh, inspiring and talking to the workforce is one of the major jobs as a leader of any organisation. Surely, if it's as important as you suggest it is to engage with your staff, it should be more widespread, shouldn't it? It should be. I suspect that um, not enough people running companies actually buy into it. I think they buy into it in theory. The number of people I hear say the most important resource we have are the people who work here and then never talk to them is quite remarkable. So I, I think people, not intentionally, but you know, when you're running organisations, if you don't set aside the time for communicating with the staff, you don't do it. You have to set aside the time and it has to be a top priority. Let's expand on it a little bit. What does Greg Dyke believe makes an excellent leader? In short, you've got to be who you are. Don't pretend to be anything else. You've got to know about how to communicate with the people who work for you and your customers, but particularly the people who work for you. You've got to care about them. They've got to think you care. And you've got to recognise that if it's a big organisation, you know, the last one I ran had 30,000 people. If it's a big organisation, it's impossible to communicate with everybody one-to-one. Therefore, you've got to work out how do you communicate. But also, I think you've got to recognise that leadership is is about the stories they tell about you. And if you walk into an organisation... Ignore the security people, ignore the receptionist, are rude to somebody else. That's the story they tell about you. If you go in and come, know everybody, talk to everybody, that's also the story they tell about you. So you've got to understand that, that actually the impact you have on a big organisation is about the stories that are told about you within the organisation. Like one day, my house caught fire in the night. And so I was up all night, covered in something the rest of it, and I was supposed to be speaking actually at a conference here the following day for people from the nations and regions of the BBC. And they'd all found out that I'd been up all night, and they they announced that I wasn't coming. So the moment I found out they'd announced I wasn't coming, I just abandoned the house, put a bit more soot on my face, (laughs) and came over. Why? Because A, they'd all come a long way, they were entitled to Two, you were telling them they mattered by coming, even though you've got other things going on in your life. But most of all, they were all going to go back 
to another group of people and say, he was all right, he? he turned up even though he'd had this fight. That's certainly an impressive way to show commitment to your employees, but leadership isn't all about firefighting. Adam asked Greg Dyke about the role leaders play in delivering change. Change is inevitable, important and unavoidable, but how can an organisation and its leader be effective in managing that change, especially somewhere as huge as, say, the BBC, which you did? Well, you've got to sell change to the people who work there. Uh, If you can, you've got to involve them in the process. If you can't, that makes it harder. But if you can involve people in the process, uh, you can sell change. You've got to have enough credibility yourself. The days when, because you were the boss, they did it, are long gone, I'm afraid. They might say they'll do it, but they won't. You've got to actually earn the credibility. And if you do that, my experience is they'll come along with you. And they'll come along with you often on very difficult decisions. But you can't just do it. You've got to explain it. Let's stay inside the doors of Broadcasting House Television Centre just for a moment. You inherited... I think it's fair to say, a BBC that was a little bit low on morale, that uh, that wanted change without the pain, if you like. And you, it, it took you a long time, didn't it, to, I think most people would agree, successfully make those changes. Now, that, that must have been quite a tall order when you first arrived. Well, a couple of years earlier, I wandered around the health service for a year, uh, doing a job for the government. I was amazed by the number of people I met in the health service who thought... On the front line, dealing with clients, dealing with customers, dealing with patients. The number of people who thought that what they achieved was despite the management. And when I got into the BBC, it was exactly the same. That that you came across people all the time who... And it wasn't necessarily true, mind you. It wasn't necessarily true, but that doesn't matter. If that's what they believe, you've got to confront that. And therefore, the first year I spent at the BBC was trying to get a lot of people on side. Uh, I spent the first six months really going around the place, just talking to people, you know. And in an organisation where they were used to having royal visits, to have someone who just turned up and just wanted to chat and say, go on then, tell me. And everywhere I went, I said, OK, look, let me ask you two questions. And this is of the staff as well as the management. What can we do to improve our service to the licence payer. Because the, pe- the people out there, it's, if you can't improve the service to them, there's no point doing any of it. What do we have to do to improve our service to them? And what can I do to make your life better? Because I think that's the key. I think the two are absolutely intrinsically linked. And that you're not going to get people who are going to do better work and better programmes if actually they don't feel valued. Next, we asked Greg how he went about understanding what people wanted from leadership when he arrived at the BBC. We got people to sit and talk about their view of the BBC. And I think we got about 15,000 people at some stage or other to sit. And somebody listened. And what we said to them is, don't tell us a stone moan. Tell us about the best things you did. Tell us about what really worked for you here. And then we said, OK, if that's to be the norm, what do we have to do to change this place? And the overwhelming message we got back, the strongest by far was, we want better leadership. Uh, so we decided to st- that everybody who was going to do a management job, anyone who was going to manage anybody, had to go through leadership training. And my, I remember I was at this sort of simple theory, you know, 15% of people are natural leaders probably. 15% couldn't be leaders if you did, you didn't matter what you do with them. But there's a big chunk in the middle who you can teach, you can help. And so often 
people get jobs without anybody helping them in leadership and they're expected to do it and this was about saying there are tricks there are things you can do and then i used to go and speak at every one of these conferences and i used to always start by just saying look um there are some rules that you ought to follow be you just be yourself don't start aping what you think managers do just because you got the job and that's a terrible tendency that you know people who are great people become managers and think they've got to be unpleasant or aggressive or start telling everybody what to do as opposed to consulting them and you don't have to do all that and that was the aim and and, and the good advantage of having doing that as a result of our whole uh, making it happen process was that when people stood up and said well aren't you wasting money doing this my answer was hang on this is what you told us you wanted there is a real problem of the public sector and you find it in health service you find it in education you find it in the bbc there's a real problem that somehow in the health service if you're not spending money on a hip replacement it's money wasted and then and my answer to that is, well, why does the public, why, if, if that's true, why does the private sector spend a fortune doing all this stuff? Because they don't waste money. But, you know, trying to, and you have to sometimes be quite blatant about it because, you know, we got accused all the time by the Daily Mail and the like of happy, clappy management and all that stuff. Well, that's because the average journalist knows nothing about management or about leadership. So you've got to do it despite them. The CIPD Podcast. So far, we've heard some interesting perspectives on creating buy-in and engagement amongst a workforce that largely wants to be led, possibly some of the easier sides of leadership. But what about when the going gets tough? There are times where you have to do unpleasant things, and there are times where you have to take an organisation in a direction that maybe many people within it don't want. What would your advice be in dealing with, I don't know, the, the less savoury side of leadership? Well, you have to justify what you're doing and why you're doing it. When I was at London Weekend Television, we were coming up to the, uh, and I was chief executive, and we were coming up to the franchise auctions of the early 90s. It was pretty clear that we, unless we did something, we would lose. You know, ITV was, had been inefficiently run for 20 years, run by the unions, and we had to change that. So in two years we got rid of half the staff and we did it by being very generous explaining what we were doing and why we were doing it explaining that the world was about to change dramatically and if we didn't do it we wouldn't be there at all and treat people properly in the process treat them generously and treat them properly so i remember people coming to me saying look i'm a 48 you know if only you could wait till i was 50 and i said fine it's all right we'll pay you to live 50 so that it works. Uh, because the money you were saving from those reunions was enormous. And what you were interested in was what was it like in five years, not what was it like t- today. But they're tough. You've got to earn the right to make those tough decisions. I think the people who walk into organisations and say, right now, I'm going to get 20% of you on day one. Well, they don't deserve a lot of su- help or a lot of support. Next, Adam asked Great Dyke about the fairly substantial changes he made to HR at the BBC. One of the great dangers is somehow, uh, I found it at the BBC quite a lot, you know, somehow that people is HR. It isn't. People is all management. And HR are there to help and advise the manager, but they are not there to do it. That's the job of the manager. 
Was that one of the reasons that the BBC and no doubt many organisations have done this elsewhere that made you make the decision to take the personal out of personnel, if you like? You centralised the personnel function. Was that in a way to to force line managers to take on some of the the day-to-day pastoral care of their staff? Partly. I mean, the HR department of the BBC was was much too big. Uh, And basically managers had opted out. They'd handed people, just like they handed finance over to the guy on the right, they handed people to the guy on the left, and then they wanted to do the nice bits. Well, without being rude, that's not their job. If you can't manage your people, you shouldn't be in in charge. So it was partly that, but we also had, I think we had one person in HR for, I can't remember the figures exactly, but something like for every 40 people who worked there, and the norm in this country was closer to one to 100 or something. So we were way out of line, and we were out of line because they were doing the management. And so therefore, we changed it. Also, you change structures in organisations for all sorts of reasons, but you change them just for the sake of change sometimes, and and it's right to do it. Um, The hard thing if you're a chief executive and you've been there a long time is to is to change the things you set up. Even if you get the strategy right at the top, and I know you've got to make all managers responsible and, and engage their staff, etc. but even if you get the strategy right at the top correct and you've got good people up there and even a few layers down, how do you get this, this vision to trickle down to the coalface, if you like, to the junior line manager, if you like, to make them as effective as the senior guys? You as the senior guy have got to sell it and you've got to sell it not just to your management, but to your staff. One of the big problems is people saying, oh, well, you're all right, but it's the middle management, as if somehow middle management... It's just not true. You've got to get them all on side. Now, you're always going to have middle management. It depends on your, how you react to them. If middle management, by taking a chance, when it goes wrong, you give them a terribly hard time, they're never going to take a risk again. So you've got to... It depends how you react to them. But... I mean, if you can take out layers, take them out. But as, a, as the ultimate boss, as the chief executive, you've got to communicate with those, with everybody in your place. Greg Dyke clearly has some firm views on the role of line managers and the responsibilities they have in managing people well. But what about the times when the message has to come from the top? I mean, I remember on the week of September the 11th, there was a lot of fuss going on about question time. And I watched it on the Saturday morning and I agreed with the fuss. The producers had made a mistake. They were so nervous of Question Time being anti-Islamic that they'd put an awful lot of Islamic people into the audience who were actually incredibly hostile to the former American ambassador. So I put out a public apology, which the BBC didn't often do. He said, I'm sorry, I don't think that was acceptable. Journalists hate apologies. I knew immediately there's a chunk of the, of the news department that would be very hostile. So I just sent them all an email on the Monday morning and I said, look, I put out this apology. This is why I did it. That's the end of it. There will be no recriminations, there will be no disciplinary hearings. We'll just get on. Disappeared overnight. You can't assume that because you're telling the next layer that they're going to tell everybody. Because they don't. So you've got to do it. What advice, Greg, would you give to, to, to leaders and, and senior people in keeping employee engagement going of pleasing staff when they're part of a huge organisation? Because you can feel a little bit like a number in a big organisation, can't you? How do you keep the intimacy despite the size? Oh, communicate with them. Write to them, tell them. Do it in a language they understand as opposed to some language of the only communication professional would understand. Um, 
tell them the stuff that matters before they read it in the paper. Uh, the BBC, we got into making films. Now, that's quite expensive. But we got into making films about the, the best things that had happened there. And then you passed so that everybody felt proud of what was going on. You know, so I remember we had um, a couple of guys who helped John Simpson liberate Kabul, you know, these, who got there by boarding the dishes, by basically packing them on top of mules and walking for two days. We made a film about them, showed it around the place. These, these, there are all sorts of heroes in organisations. There are people who do wonderful things. You've got to celebrate that. Secondly, um, do little things but show you care. What mistakes do you think you've made in terms of leadership, Greg? Um, oh, well, I've never been very good at working upwards. This is a theme Jeff Grout picked up when he interviewed Greg on the stage at the CIPD's HRD conference. But you've always had you, a healthy disrespect for rules, haven't you? For rules? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it didn't help me in the end, though, did it? But, I mean, um, I remember going to one of these management sessions years and years ago, and, some, and oh, who was it? Somebody who said, nobody ever succeeded in an organisation by following the rules. And there's a degree of truth in that. And what you want is people are going to challenge it. I used to go around the BBC, and people used to come to me and say, if only I could do this, you know, I, we could do this. And I used to say, well, why don't you? They said, we haven't got any money. So I used to say, steal it. And they, you know, I didn't mean steal it. What I meant was they lived in organisations with enormous budgets. Greg also shared another personal weakness with Adam. At times, impatience, really. One of the great dangers of any change programme, I think, is that the management get bored with it just about the time it's getting through and they move on to something else. Therefore, the people down there say, well, why should I listen to this? Because I listened to the last one or the one before. So if you're going to do something, you've got to see it through. So if I was to give you 10 seconds just to give one great big tip to somebody listening to this podcast and wanting to do better as a senior HR person or a senior manager, as a leader in an organisation, what would that one big tip be? Go learn how to communicate. Go learn how to, both in a written way, in a verbal way, but go learn about communication. The, the biggest complaint of staffs in any organisation is that they don't know, they're not kept informed. And it's not that they're not kept informed, it's that the communications are usually awful. Don't write gobbledygook. Take it home, see if the people of your kids understand it and the rest of it. But communicate properly. And secondly, just be you. Just be you. Greg Dyke, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. You can hear more from Greg Dyke at the CIPD annual conference in September. Jeremy Paxman will be interviewing Greg alongside another renowned business leader, Sir Jerry Robinson. For more information about the event, visit cipd.co.uk slash annual conference. In the next CIPD podcast, we'll be looking at the latest developments in employment law. Remember, you can subscribe to receive CIPD podcasts and find out more about other editions by visiting cipd.co.uk slash podcasts. You can also give us any feedback on the podcast there too. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Join us next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to the CIPD podcast series. 